This week we're joined by a man of rock and roll tunes for only cool cats, the behemoth for bohemians and kind of sort of hats, the jive talking striker of Home Farm and St. Pat's, yeah you know it's groovy baby, we're speaking with Seafoam Green's Dave O'Grady, moving to Liverpool and singing the blues, Seamus Coleman, the transfer win or an Everton ruse, fuck John Delaney, the FAI smooth. Dave O'Grady, thank you very much for joining us. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Hi, I'm Dave. I'm in a band called Seafoam Green. I'm from Dublin. Seafoam uh, Green is a, a rock and roll outfit, a rock and roll American outfit. It's myself, mainly myself and a, a wonderful singer called Mwern McDermott Long, who's uh, from Ireland as well, and a bunch of our friends. And we kind of play blues, Americana, rock and roll, kind of guitar-based storytelling good time music the traveling and the meeting the new people is like a large part of the experience <laughs> good stuff so um what do you have coming up for us dave in regards to sounds beats live music obviously with covid it's probably been just as difficult time as any um so tell us what what you know everything's getting a little bit more sort of positive tell us what is coming up for yourself yeah, well, we've been kind of, we tried to work steadily along through the year. You know, it was hard with no shows and everything, but you have to adapt and overcome. And, you know, if you want to keep doing this when the walls come down, you got to work while the walls are up, I guess. So um, we made a new record. We have a first single out called House on the Hill on April 1st. And then we'll have a second single out on in around May time called Mine on Mine. And then our new record, see, we haven't done a record in five years. So it's like our second record, five years uh, is out on June 1st called Martin's Garden. And uh, and then we will be doing a couple of shows through summer. Who knows what summer's going to be, but like come September time, we're going to Ireland, we're going to Europe, or we're going to around the UK, we're going to America for two months. Um, who knows? It w- will it happen? I don't know. But like, you know, we've made plenty of plans that have gone by the wayside. How about Liverpool? Have you got anything in Liverpool coming up? We're going to be playing um, Kelly's Dispensary on Smithdown Roads. Um, I'm getting involved with Kelly's and we're going to be trying to put on a lot of cool gigs there and we're going to be um, doing a Seafoam show there to kind of get the ball rolling Great. in September. I haven't got a date yet. Sometime in September. Sounds good. And we're going to get this out the way early, so uh, I want you to plug yourself. Where can people find you on socials? All the socials are Seafoam Green HQ um, or SeafoamGreenBand.com. You'll find us. Nice and bold to uh, name your band after Everton's third kit mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. We got Chicken. asked that a few times actually. Yeah. Chicken or the egg. Dave, can I ask about the melodic distraction UK stuff, like the radio show you got? Is that monthly? Is it bi weekly? How's that? Where can people listen there? Fourth Tuesday of the month, six till seven, and it's me and a guy called Chris Nichols who plays bass and seafoam green. And um yeah, it's just an hour of us kind of like we have a good we're good friends. We have a good a good rapport. So we both bring five or six tunes and a bit of chat of what's going on. And yeah, it's yeah good it's definitely, definitely worth a listen. I listened to one. On, I think it was the 21st of Feb after we beat Liverpool. So it starts with Zed cars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone was feeling a little bit nostalgic. <laughs> that was it. Like well, everything was nice enough to send us a bunch of seafoam green kits for the derby. And we wore them and we won. So there we go. We, didn't so, wear any fancy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, most importantly, though, um, you've got some stories, really, that I guess, from an outside perspective, um, 
it gives us a different viewpoint on the life of an Evertonian or the life of a football fan and the life of somebody who um, who maybe comes to support an English football team outside of, I guess, what generically people in Ireland would tend to support. Um, so can you tell us about the the early years and, and, and how you sort of, um, how you come to play football and be involved in football and, and tell us a little bit about Home Farm and, and St. Pat's Athletic? Yeah, so I started playing football, I guess, when everybody starts playing football. What's the, what's the first under eight team? It's like under sevens or under eights is the real kind of like yeah. first. And um, so I've been going to see St. Patrick's Athletic. I grew up in around in Chicor in South Dublin and, and my father's a St. Pat's fan. And it was always like kind of learned to sing on the terrace of singing along in, in the crowd and all that, you know. Um, and then came of age playing football six or seven, and I don't know how I ended up at home farm. Um, maybe one of my school friends or something was playing there, kind of, and I was like, oh, I want to play football with my friend, and ended up going there and had a um, little trial and got on the team, and you know that was the first. And I always remember that it was like, it was mad because the, the like you watch. You know, I was born in 88, so I've always had TV and there's always been football on the TV. So there's always been certain clubs and sponsorships and kits that are, have been instantly recognizable. You know what I mean? So and Home Farm at the time, they wore the Everton kit. It was like it wasn't like they just had it was a namesake or whatever. And they wore the kit. So that I remember thinking that was cool, like seeing that like on the TV. And then that was the club that we were playing for. And, and my grandfather. Um was a big football fan and a big sports fan and he's a Man United fan so there's Man United fans in my family and you know I def I'd be lying if I said I didn't have a United shirt or two when I was a kid you know um so pl- kind of playing for Everton and that United streak in my family kind of united over a, a mutual kind of hatred for Liverpool <laughs> that was kind of cemented you know through school and that and I was always a wind-up merchant that but like my 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 joy and my love was going to see uh, you know the Pats matches and yeah. the other day was the launch of the League of Ireland season and it was um, uh, St Pats against Shamrock Rovers and uh, and I got to put on the projector in the house and be part of the experience which I haven't had to do for years and years and years and years and years you know what I mean so it's great. Hi Dave, that um, home farm kit, the Everton collaboration, um, it's ingrained in my memory that I come from Irish Catholic descendants so. It it runs deep that sort of those those rebel songs and and it sort of feels like it was it was like it's that terrace feel isn't it? But what's what's with the Everton connection with you? Like why why were you drawn to Everton? Um, they just kind of kept popping up. I remember like my best friend's dad was an Everton fan, and then the first club that like was the home farm connection, and and then I guess Everton were just a club that were like had a strong support in Ireland like obviously when I was growing up like the Man United's and the Liverpool's and were like the big clubs for the for the kids of my age if when they were picking an English team but a lot of the dads and all that were all Everton fans and and I later went on to learn that like the first traveling support uh fan club out of Ireland to go watch Premier League team was Everton where was that based Dave? do you know is that directly out of Dublin or? no it was just it was just something that um 
that I read somewhere. I mean, the Catholic yeah. club and Liverpool would have been the Protestant team going back, you know. And I know we're going to get into this a bit deeper, but like I've done a little bit of like research just on the history of that, like Irish football and the influence with obviously like football in England and. Um, a big turning point on one of the sort of documentaries I watched was like nineteen sixty six. Apparently, eighty percent of Ireland had a TV at that time, so it's that whole like the mid sixties sort of um, as like obviously England winning the World Cup, it was being televised, and like the impact of that, and then then you talk about the United references in uh, I think there was forty eight thousands and thirty eight thousand fans. Um, it watched Waterford versus Manchester United in 1968 and like the sort of lasting impact of that and I know we talk, talked a bit more about that and um, previously on the pod and um, but like to return back to the Everton a little bit before we get into that a little bit deeper like was it was it playing for home farm and just having this around in your early formative years that really drawn you towards Everton I guess? So it was. So that was definitely the thing that kind of like, all right, cool. I I have a like part of me has an association and a love because my it was the first football team that I played for with this club, and then moving to Liverpool in two thousand seven, just kind of a lot of guys who kind of migrated through my band for whatever reason all happened to be Evertonians. Like my last three bass players were all Evertonians. Chris, who plays bass with us now full time, is an Evertonian. One of my best friends, Jed who isn't a musician, but is like one of my dearest friends in Liverpool. He's an Evertonian. Um, and then, yeah, it just, it just, I don't know. And I just, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't support Liverpool. Is it a requisite then you have to, you have to support them in order to be in Seafoam Green or? It isn't, but it would, it would hedge your bet, maybe. <laughs> it should be. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say Richard Dunn was the reason he became an Evertonian, <laughs> but... Uh, I'll chalk that off my notes now. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, disappointed again, guys, from another guest. So, um, Dave, tell us a little bit more about St. Pat's and what it's like at that uh, at that level, because plenty of us uh, was listening to the pod probably. I would guess the, um, the the lowest we would go down, like, into, into sort of the National League would be, like, Marine or... Uh, cables, Prescott Cables or Southport um, but being the top league in Ireland and having that relationship with the community, is it is it a different feel when you go to watch St. Pat's than when you uh, experience a game in the Premier League? For sure for sure like, um, like I don't think it's any less exciting because like getting like you know the anticipation of going to a football match especially if you take public transport you know what I mean? And there's a buzz the whole way and there's pints beforehand and you can feel like the buzz going around the ground. Like there was all that. It was great. The only, I, I much prefer it because you like a couple of the players will have a pint in the pub after the match. And as a kid, that's amazing. I used to get the same players autographs in the pub after every match. <laughs> that's so old, old school. Isn't autographs it? were a thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? I completely resonate with that. I remember um, as a kid, I went down to watch West Ham and Blackburn. Um, Ian Bishop was from Liverpool, so there was some sort of connection. We got tickets that way, and we went down into the players' lounge and getting signatures off like sort of middle middle of the road West Ham players was sort of like the biggest sort of sort of superstar thing I'd ever seen, except for Stan Lazaridis calling me George all night, which is a bit strange because <laughs> he couldn't speak English properly, so. Um, and 
on that on 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 that sort of feel of that relationship with your with your club and that integration with like the fan and the player, um, you've mentioned to us off pod about your sort of your your Irish player like the person that and obviously that connection to Manchester United a little bit is Roy Keane, um, is it his Irishness? That is the reason why he's so sought after, or is it because he was just a world class midfielder? Um, I just yeah, I, he just he's just no nonsense, isn't he? You know what I mean? Like, and probably to a deficit. Um, he just you have to think like when Roy Keane was like coming of age in the early nineties when I was discovering football. So my kind of my interest and my awareness of football would have grown and flourished as his career would have. Uh, went through the ages, you know what I mean. Obviously, I don't remember the early stuff in the late. It was it late eighties when he was at. It was that. Forest, he wasn't it? Yeah, Cobramblers, I think, first on it, and then Forest. Yeah, but he was just yeah, he's just great, and like anything, anything great that Ireland have done in my lifespan, he has been like the central. What do you think it is that defined? He obviously he's County Cork, isn't he? So what is it that made him the player that he was? I mean, he was formidable, wasn't he? He was. I just think he wanted it more than anybody else. I just think it comes down to a lot of it is down to pure desire because. Um, yeah, obviously he was a gifted footballer, but like he, it's not like he was he was a ballerina or whatever. You know what I mean? And he had a hot head, and he had other things to contend with, and I'm sure he had vices off the pitch as well. You know what I mean? But I think pure desire over overcame. You know, and well, look what he's achieved. You know. Yeah, and he was always kind of like in his autobiography. He always kind of repeats like he was always told he was too small. He was always told no, he could never progress, and he always fought against that. Fight is a seen... powerful thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Isn't it? Definitely driven him to get to where he was. Definitely. He's he's come he's, he's come up through that. Um, he's come up through hard graft, hasn't it? He? He's not come through a large club's academy and just sort of waltzed into the first team. He's He'd come through sort of what, like he'd come from Ireland at an early age, Forest. He'd gone through a couple of teams before he got to United, didn't he? So it's got that, um, it's got that being part of a band feel that you've got to go and do all the things you have to do to get where you want to be, type of. So maybe that's a, another reason as a musician why he resonates as well, you know, just as an outside perspective. Um, and uh, Jack Charlton as well, mate. So you've got a couple of Jack Charlton stories. Um, and we want to hear them again. So for the fifth time, no, I'm joking. No, um, well, I was very lucky. You know, my, my grandfather is quite the man in the west of Ireland and in Ballina, County Mayo. And it's where my mother and everybody hails from. And um, Jack had a house there. And um, for my grandfather, I kind of knew him from fishing and that. And, you know, being a man of the people, as, as, as I say. Um, so, yeah, there was a couple of occasions where we got to go fishing with Jack, which was like, Quite memorable. I have to have a fishing rod. I mean, I expect to get some hooks with it. I mean, I can sit all day on the rocks catching nothing and just looking around and, 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 and relaxing and enjoying it and with the expectancy that I might get something. Shame there's not one of you stood behind him fishing with him or something like that. Just yeah, there, 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 might be a couple, there might be a couple of pictures like that, but I always loved that, like, everywhere he would go for pints, he'd always pay by check because people would frame the check and never cash it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like the word adulation. It's it's not one that that and the friends of mine. I like to think of the Irish as friends of mine. I mean, I, I've I've met thousands and thousands of them. If I stop in a pub or I stop in a restaurant on the way across Ireland, invariably somebody sends me a pint of Guinness over, or somebody pays for me meal, or somebody that the, the, the won't take the money. 
man of many talents. And now checks aren't a thing, so you can't get you can't get away with that anymore. <laughs> so when Jack first came and that to Ireland, it, like the whole perception of him changed as well by the time he finished. Yeah, yeah, he was adopted. Why was that? Um, I don't know. I think he came and he he immersed himself amongst the people and he got involved. And I think you know he moved to Ireland. I don't think he was flying in. I think he like got involved in the culture and. Um, and I think probably having like a more English, more famous brother to, to kind of overshadow him kind of probably helped in a way because he was kind of an underdog in that type of scenario. It's like, it's like you're more accepted because you're less English because your brother is the English boy. You know what I mean? In that kind of mad, in that kind of mad way. Um, but yeah, no, it's, I, I remember having like the, the, the videos of all the World Cups and the Euros of of Jack getting us to the nearly men, but it didn't matter. Like we were never supposed to win it. It was just like an incredible journey to an ultimate failure that we enjoyed the ride. It was great. History has been made in the giant stadium in New Jersey. Another magnificent chapter in Jack Johnson's managerial career. The Republic of Ireland have beaten Italy for the very first time. And Jack Charlton's victory in his 79th international in charge is surely one of the... He did alter the perception of, of Irish football, though, didn't he? Or at least the way we perceive it, at least, anyway. He sort of elevated it so I mean, much. We find a lot of English lads. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask that question there, Dave, is like, how, how do you feel in regards to that, like... Um... The nationalisation of the 90s. Well, well, it's not that. I, I th- I'd say it's more like the nationalisation of of people. Like you know, Jack Grealish recently was probably the more prominent one of trying to find ancestry and things. How, how do you feel about that as an Irishman? And and does it water down how you feel towards the national team, or do you have like an underlying appreciation that the, you know. What, what would be in, in essence taking a step down in level yeah so I don't I don't know because I've thought about this quite a lot in regards to our international team I have like sat down and I've meditated on like if I was in charge how would I structure it right so there's a couple ideas there's like fuck it any like let's play the granny <laughs> rule anybody who has like had a granny or a great granny who is Irish and you're a good footy player, but you're actually Brazilian, and you are not getting picked in the Brazilian Brazilian squad, get in the team, right? Option A, right? Option B is only Irish-born lads, right? Yeah. Irish and lasses. Born, yeah, and lasses, sorry. Um, <laughs> stricter option, obviously, football team is, you know, you're limiting your numbers, so probably not going to be as good. But the one that the t- the one that I would like, and it would be kind of in a selfish way of trying to benefit the League of Ireland, would be to have to have, say, five homegrown-based league representative in the male or female league. So in your squad of like twenty, you would have to have five players who are playing in the home league. That's what I would like to see. Yeah, just to jump in on that point, that is like it is interesting that you say that because uh, I forget the date though. Um, that the in throughout those tournaments, so the eighty eight, the year you were born, uh, the in Germany, the um, Italian ninety, and then obviously USA ninety four, 
the Jack Charlton years. That was a point that uh, was made in this documentary that um, there was no no League of Ireland players in that squad. They all played in different leagues, but once upon a time there was League of Ireland players in there. And I know we're going to move on to this. Your point about like sort of migrating, like the world's a smaller place now. A lot more people are migrating to different parts of the world. You see it with England cricket. Just to go back, because I didn't, sorry, you asked, like you referenced Jack Grealish and uh, Declan Rice. And who, like, do I, how do I feel about people, like, declaring and not declaring? Like, on the Declan Rice and the Jack Grealish, I think they weren't getting a sniff in the English team on all the underages teams, right? So they went and they played for Ireland from under 12s to under 21s and one friendly on the senior team, both of them. Um, and then they get, a, they get a bit of fame on the Premier League. Okay, it's like, oh, these lads exist. And then... Players that we have nurtured and cared for and looked after, and as well as their clubs, of course, um, are just kind of snatched for more of a chance of playing at a World Cup. And I get it. And they are English. So, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, they, they yeah, played for the Republic and they declared them, you know, we did well, I'm sure, in some, some youth tournaments. But, like, you can't be mad because, you know, Jack Reedish is born and raised in Birmingham, right? Yeah. Yeah, Brummier, like, you know, I'd love them in the Ireland team. I'm not going to lie. And it has this, like, similar essence to what Sean said then, you know, with the um, with the footprint of, of Ireland being across the world, and then even if the footprint of Ireland isn't across the world, people still try and claim that they have an Irish footprint. So with... It, it, it's got this, like, sort of parallel with the way the NFL works at college level in, in America, that... They take away the. Uh, they have to have a certain what you the point you're trying to make there about you've got to have a certain amount of homegrown players in your squad, uh, for your ideal. Uh, with sort of junior college football, it will be you've got to have a certain amount of homegrown players from the state, and then you can go and get out of state players. Like and it, what it does is it keeps a competitiveness within the state, and it keeps a competitiveness within that not only competitiveness, it keeps like a mindset of, you know. Um, you're representing yeah, yeah you're representing where you're from uh, yeah and it's it's allowing that player to know that there is an opportunity for me because even if I'm not the best in the country I'm the best in the state which means someone in this state is going to come looking for me um because well, I would there's supposed to be like a, an introduction in the Premier League of like an eight and three rule or something for every start at 11 yeah and then but they it, back, it never backfired happened. didn't it yeah I think yeah. they panicked didn't they yeah, because the league went shite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's interesting, though, because I see um, Ireland and Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland and even, you know, France is a good example, like very proud to be French, but they've got a footprint across, you know, Africa and, and, and everywhere. Like Zinedine Zidane's from uh, yeah, Algeria. Algeria, they've got Moroccans and... They've done it in a way that uh, isn't harming, especially France isn't really harming the league. Uh, but Ireland being a, such a you know smaller league in terms of the, the rankings, it, I think it should it should probably should be something that's put in place right to to ensure that the league. They've keeps... attempted this at the moment, where because so two years ago, three Mick McCarthy took over the the interim job in the Republic of Ireland job, right, in the wake of trying to set up Stephen Kenny. So Stephen Kenny was the manager of Dundalk in the League of Ireland when they went on their mad run. I think they, they got into they got into the group stages in the Europa League and they won three or four leagues in a row and 
and they were like, okay, we've been here, we're, we've groomed this fella to give him the Ireland job. He's not quite ready, so we're going to give Mick McCarthy the job and we're going to give him the under-21s job for the year. Then Mick will, you know, step aside in a year and take over. And it's been this whole setup and it has gone shocking. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, I don't know, it's, I just think, I know we want to make all the leagues, everything, and interwine it, make it ever, but there are levels and there are outliers and sometimes... You do have to you do have to overlook certain people and you do have to just get the best person for the job and mm. it can't always be the most insular homegrown organic thing that we all want it to be. But you know, football costs money, it makes money, but you know, ultimately it's a business, isn't it? Seamus Coleman's gonna get brought up now, and this is something that you brought up to us that maybe we don't realise being Evertonians, you know, from the from England never really experienced that sort of little fish moving over and or a big fish in a small pond moving over to be a, a sort of, you know, what has turned out to be a very good deal. But for such a small fee, uh, you got a little bit of an opinion on what should be done about the knock-on effect of the game in Ireland. It's, it's unfortunate that, like, there's such a gulf in the monetary value of the League of Ireland and the Premier League that... The Premier League players on a on a whim can snap up all the best players in the league and just have them on some like some fucking training academy, mm. you know, earning like fucking two grand a week. That you know, they like they wouldn't have a chance of getting in the League of Ireland, or like only if they were like the you know, top top three or four teams getting that a week or whatever. Uh. And they don't get to develop in the league and the league doesn't get to develop, you know, there'd be a lot, you know, it would be a lot better if they were allowed to develop in the league into good footballers or loan back or, mm. you know. I was going to say, to, I mean, we've talked about it and I think it's something after the chat with you that we talked together about and it's it's sort of, it's a steal for us, isn't it, as a club? And you think, wow, we've had him for, what, 10 years or something and it's, it, but it's actually daylight robbery, isn't it? So how do we... How do you fix that? How does that? How do? How would you suggest going forward? Clubs change that. I think if you, I think it's a time versus money, right? So you take sixty grand for Seamus Coleman, and it's like Everton would be happy if he played one season and then fell flat in his arse and was sold to Bolton, right? Or someone, or Wigan, or lower, yeah. right? Whatever, wouldn't have to move house. Um, <laughs> So, all right, so that's let's say that's your 60 grand for one year investment. If you get two years out of them, there's a little kickback. If you get five years out of them, there's another little kickback. You know what I mean? It can't always just be big fish, big money. Like, I can bully you into this being um, no risk for me. You know? Like, there is certain things where, like, childhood clubs and schoolboy clubs do get a kickback on big fees, but, like, it's small potatoes. Like, it's... yeah. I mean, if Everton knocked a hundred grand back to you for every year, I'm sure it's nothing to them, is it? That I mean, that's someone's wages a week, isn't it? If that was fifteen grand, mm. it would make yeah. a huge difference. It was <laughs> a schoolboy yeah. academy or whatever. Definitely. Sly, Sligo have um, Sligo have got like a, a quite a decent junior coaching system, but I, I believe I read at some point that a lot of their players um, will go on to different sports just because the. Like there's no propeller to go further. It's a rarity that Seamus Coleman does what Seamus Coleman's done. Uh, but if that kickback every season was able in there, like surely they would stay in the sport. 
or, or there's more of an opportunity, right? Yeah, it would just allow them kind of opportunities to be a bit like a bit nicer with the players and make it a bit easier and like you know players who feel good play good you know that kind of um one thing that Sligo, i saw sligo rovers have done recently actually which i thought was good it was like every baby born in sligo hospital now gets like a little newborn jersey does that first that in italy dave yeah uh, atalanta do it in bergamo don't they, they give them, and they give um they give a bottle of milk that is because obviously they got their their sponsors kit. One of their sponsors is a like the the local milk sort of producer in Bergamo. So every newborn baby gets an Atalanta kit and a bottle of milk that they can um, for like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure somebody's making pasta with it or something. So um, we send sour milk. <laughs> yeah, we send sour milk. Yeah. Steal or daylight robbery is the sort of like the the main question that we we bring in there. Um, I'm not talking about socialism. You know what I mean. You don't have to keep repaying the. the yeah, but it'd be nice to like. It'd be nice to have that back and forth. Yeah, it's like building an academy. So like Dave's mentioned it before about having a sort of a network of clubs. You know, so that we use them, they use us, and it's a filter system, isn't it? You know, in and out. And now there, there is that. Like I know Crumlin FC have. Um, I know when I I played for. Um, Bohemians Football Club broke my heart, I tell you, for a couple of games um, towards towards the end of my my teen career. You know, when my knees went, isn't that what they say when you when you're not good at football anymore? Ah, my knees, you know, I had trials, but my knees. Um, 19. I know were like a Man City feeder club in Cherry Orchard. You know, there is there is arrangements, but maybe not necessarily with like Premier League, like Premier League. Um, Irish clubs like like a concept that I want to run past you Dave is like what we see like with Man City um, I've, we've talked about it a number of different times on the pod and they've got like and like it, it is dub, been dubbed as sports washing or whatever they've got different clubs around the world like pushing sort of this agenda for them but the the model is really cool because each club like shares players um, in like kind of like it's yeah, and Melbourne City and like like the whole business aspects run and like that infrastructure's being built in all these different places around the world. Like, would you be opposed to that happening with like Irish clubs in- integrating with like Premier League clubs, or would you be against it for it? I don't know. No, I I wouldn't I wouldn't be I wouldn't be against that at all. I think it would be difficult to do if the clubs weren't on a similar level. You know what I mean? Like, you couldn't yeah. be having. Imagine Neymar ta- turning up at the showgrounds in Sligo because PS or Barcelona PSG have loaned them out to their sister club or whatever. You know what I mean? Be good for them. Mess. Ticket sales. But that's it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's. Trying to think people maybe it's like touring, touring bands. It's like you can tour <laughs> Neymar across all your clubs. You play one team. Right. Remember, I've said this. I'm stealing. Your- <laughs> Right. You forget. But there will be like a Ronaldo player, right? Will be the first player to, to every <laughs> of the season he will play for a different club, right? In a different league or something like that. Be like the Pope, you know, the Pope, yeah. where they put yeah. him in the Pope mobile and then they just drive yeah. him around. Bring him on for the last half an hour of every match he's got. <laughs> I think Beckham was probably the first one to do that, right? Like, or Pele when he went to New York Cosmos. Yeah. <laughs> But like players are products, and like mm-hmm. and again the model in the Premier League is obviously working now. And I know there's competition everywhere, but like if it, 
like people like football in England or like football um, in Ireland or wherever. Like it's the world's game, isn't it? And if it's working, making money and creating jobs for certain amount of people, that should be like replicated elsewhere. But right? It's about commitment as well, though, isn't it? So people yeah, like yeah. people are committed to one club for their life, you know, and they like they're not going to like players not being committed to the cause. Uh. The players just getting off and playing for this club and that club or whatever, you know, I, I don't think it would sit well. They're coming fewer and fewer though, aren't they? Like you say, like, the, the Ireland's a good example, isn't it? Like, like the league has been through its ups and downs. <laughs> Mostly downs, I would say. <laughs> well, I, I, look, I was looking at the history and like the big turning points and like, like you say, like that Jack Charlton in those years were like really peak for like international Irish football but again it didn't have that League of Ireland player which is such a shame and of the qualities there right because you've got like all the players in the Premier League that I've seen and I think I've seen something another thing as well that I've seen was like the one of the executives at the time who was running the league um, yeah in 2016 that story can you share some light on that story and like John Delaney fucking crook and he just What's he actually like, though? <laughs> yeah, tell him, be honest about him, Dave. I, I don't know. I reckon you're going to have to censor me a few things on this. <laughs> yeah. I'm really interested, though, because we Go don't hear about this as our opportunity. So he, you know, he was, you know, the best way to think of him is like a career, a career politician, you know, out for himself. And he was liking the schmoozing and, and cozying up with all the other FAs and getting fundings and this. And he was got his girlfriend a job on 50 grand a year to be his assistant. And, he was loaning himself money from the from the FAI and he would like a bunch of things that I'm not even privy to. I've ordered his book, Champagne Football, the book about a champagne football. It, you know, I haven't got it yet, so I'm looking forward to giving that a read. But I remember him referring openly in the press as the League of Ireland as the problem child of the FAI. You know what I mean? So Yeah, I've, I've, read, well, I've read today that he, he, so he gave the clubs in 2016, so 20 clubs in the league, €100,000 as a five-year plan. Like So essentially, it was like, what was it? Oh, 25 grand a year, wasn't it? And then he was earning €400,000 400, Euro, annually himself. Most of his expenses. He only got 150 grand for winning the league. It's crazy. It's just like the just the there should be regulations and stuff in place. Like no there is. modern ones. They're making the regulations. It's just a shame that they're, they're all set by Blatter and Platini, though, aren't they? That's the problem. So see it on YouTube. Probably like ten or fifteen years ago, there was a Dundalk fan who broke into the League of Ireland offices. The FAI officers where John Delaney was and covered himself in petrol and was going to light himself on fire <laughs> if he didn't, like, get their shit together, you know what I mean? It was horrendous. Horrendous. It's that in front of the tanks moment there, Dave, isn't it, for Ireland? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't catch me there, but yeah. <laughs> so, um, what what we really... Uh, what we get from, from you, Dave, is obviously backstory of your early years, and then you mentioned earlier on about... Uh, you come to Liverpool in, what was it, 2007? So why Liverpool? Um, and we're going to sort of delve into a little bit more about that, but why Liverpool, mate? So uh, I had a friend here. Um, I got sacked from my job and my girlfriend dumped me on the same day and I rang me mate. Who... <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. I can laugh no, at you're it. So, you're so straight, it's funny. Yeah, no, it's because I've told the story a billion times. No. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, that happened on the Wednesday and I rang a friend of mine who was studying film in John Moore's and I was like, I hear my head's falling off, you know what I mean? What'll I do? She was like, come over here for the weekend. Have a bit of crack, a few pints, Liverpool's great, it's cheap. Um, we'll, you know, we'll have a crack for a few days and then get your head straight. And I was like, all right. So I, uh, by the time I finished packing my bag, I was like, ah, sure, fucking I might as well just go and stay. Like, why not? It was the end of the month. The job sacked me. I got my last paycheck. I probably got like 1,200 quid or whatever. And I just went over and there was, back in the day, in 2007, Liverpool, there was like two or three open mic nights a night, seven yeah. nights a week. So it was it was prime for the picking. I came over, I had like an 18-year-old's enthusiasm. I was like, I'm going to be a rock star. Um, and just smashed it. I, it was like, I got my head together and I was like, right, I'm going to meet everybody. I'm going to write some songs. I'm going to like, I'm going to become a staple in this city. And, um, and fortune favors the brave and the bold and i got a bunch of really cool opportunities within the first six months of being there to play with some cool bands and do some cool tours and just like really learn a lot and then that just kind of um you know um emboldened my kind of stubbornness that this is what i wanted to do and what i've been doing ever since so three courses of liverpool have got irish roots somehow we can all trace it back but um you've been here sort of 10 years or so do you feel like the city has changed and um and if so how yeah uh well there was no liverpool one there was no the waterfront there was no albert there was just the albert dock um yeah it was nuts yeah um, quick turnaround, didn't it hannah's bar had a smoking area that's <laughs> everywhere had a smoking area <laughs> That was it. I went through the smoking ban in Ireland, was gutted, then moved over here, could smoke again, and then went through it again. <laughs> and then I was like, no, I, I, just, I just give up smoking. I don't know. Rebel. Yeah, where were you living then, uh, Dave, when you first came? Where were you? Oh, when I first moved in, I what moved area? into 52A Croxton Road by the bus stop just before Southland Park. That's very specific, that day. Is there a plaque on the, on the wall? Yeah. <laughs> over the last... Uh, how long is it? Like 13 years that I've been here. Or 40, I don't even know. What year is it? 2020? <laughs> like, what year is it? It's March. 14 years that I've been living happened. here. I have met several people that have lived, like, I've met 30 people who lived in that building. <laughs> right. Just in bars, chatting, and be like, oh, yeah, I, I once lived in this flat. It's mad. It's like 72A Rodney Street. 72A Rodney Street. Someone listening to this podcast be like, I fucking lived there. <laughs> it's like 1860s Liverpool. Yeah. There's like 70 people to like a house. There's certain <laughs> apartments in Liverpool that have just had so many people migrate. And there's a couple of them in like, um, where was it today? Faulkner Square. Mm. There's a couple of houses and apartments that like I know a bunch of people who have like. It's posh there now. Yeah, it is posh there now, yeah. yeah. But, Not like yeah, in our day, <laughs> Have you, you bounced about then, Dave? Like huh? over the years, have you bounced around the city or have you just moved yeah, every, every six months? I mainly so I, I mainly around Toxted, Smithdown, Wavertree area. There's always affordable students, Irish musicians, few pubs. Um nothing too serious, but not quite like as hard as North Liverpool. It wasn't as aggressive, it was a bit more bohemian and um, yeah, so I just hung around there, and then um, I met my wife in 2012, 
And then we lived in Liverpool for a little bit and she's from the world. So now I live on the world. Now I've made it. I've retired to the peninsula. Or <laughs> yeah. sunlight. That's the day ago. No, I live, I live in New Brighton now. We bought a place last year and we love it. It's great. You, you, um, little shout out for Hannah's bar there and that like 2007 music scene was sort of for, for well for, for us really was like prime hebe's uh savar lagos like that type of and it was just it's, it's changed so much and how's the how's the music scene changed in 2007 um you know sir to chip in uh, with your sort of understanding of it as well but dave like it t- tell us the difference between gigging then and, and gigging now um everything now is kind of well first of all i have to kind of like caveat it was like i'm kind of slightly removed from the scene um we like bands evolve and things and we're not so much like out gigging in the liverpool scene and an awful lot now because we're trying to you know travel a lot and do records and do tours and kind of like not be as accessible and you know make it a you know, treat the shows as a more of an event and things like that. I don't know. It's different. It's not as it's not as open. I don't think everyone's just like yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna make it and I'm gonna be the one who goes viral. And it's a lot. I think it's I think it's I think it's unfortunately less community driven. Not by a lot, but I think from what from the maybe that's just where I am in my life and how I felt when I first came here. Um, but. I think there's a lot less opportunities and there's a lot less going on and there's fewer open mics and there's fewer jam nights. I think there's a lot more demands for other people's attention now, like with, you know, Netflix and video games and things. So like people who would go to open mic nights and go to do gigs and things, there's not as much water in the well. So I think with, for me, for coming up, my sort of early years of of learning from maybe people in their 50s and 60s were sort of just going along to like a jam night, like a folk night and just people, just fellas that had been there for 30 odd years having a pint and they just took the guitar and it was a real just sing along and I learned from that and that is an absolute dying thing it's it's just not there anymore and doing then, it for doing it yeah doing it for doing it and 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 bringing new songs that they, and these songs that you think my god you know and they wrote them maybe last week and these guys are so they're just doing it they just want to play music and they want to be in the same room as each other just listening to 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 what they're doing and i think the last i don't think it's anything to do with with the pandemic i think venues like the zanzibar and sort of those sort of dirty nights in the jacaranda i think they were always it's coming to an end isn't it and going and just playing songs that you'd written a week or two before it, it's definitely a dying trade it's which is sad really because you we might not feel the effects of it now but i think we will we will in 10 years you know people but just for a little shameless plug there i'm taking over uh booking all the music for my friends bars which is the dispensary in town kelly's dispensary on smith down road and Duckleaf, and i'm going to be trying to, trying to bring a bit more of that like community jam nights like yes. good, good open mic good music nights, a couple of touring bands coming through, you know, treating, treating bands well, paying them well. Um, and Get along. There, so. Yeah, you'll have to send us those details, Dave, and we'll spread the word, obviously, for you. We'd love to, like, I'd love to, like, that's why we set up Mint to kind of help those communities, right? Um, I was going to ask you both, because obviously you're both talking about it then, like, do you think that'll come back? 
those sort of jam nights and things like that post-pandemic? Or do you think, is it just looking bleak from like a musician's perspective um, at the minute? I think it will, but it's just a lot more niche now, I think. Like, it used to be a cultural thing. It's not a cultural thing anymore. And people want the next, they want it, like, now. They want to be, like... It's too, like, yeah. it's too hard to swallow a lot of the time. People want really easily digestible bits of information and it's like mm. you know if you go see a real musician and a real songwriter or a real, a real wordsmith or you know a thoughtful performer it's not always digestible you know what I mean I'm not here to like make you feel nice all the time I visited Dublin I've done the whole touristy thing but there's such a bit is it the same there as well Dave like do you know have you been back obviously I know because there's every pub I normally there's a couple of People playing music and it's such a scene, like you say, in loads of different pubs. Like live music's like a given, isn't it? No, it's it's better, but it's still it's still heading the same way. But also, you know, I moved to Liverpool when I was eighteen. You know what I mean? So I'm I'm also kind of removed from. I couldn't comment on like what is happening on the scene in du- like Dublin on a weekly. You don't have any connections there or anything like that. I do, but like I wouldn't feel like I could I could pass like. A judgment on the scene i'm sure it's the same as every european city where there's there's good artists trying to do some cool things and there's some some shysters trying to play um you know fucking king's leon or some shite like that but um you know does does that does that kill that um connection to the to the trad scene though to that traditional music does uh people wanting just familiarity and wanting to listen to the same five or six songs does that kill historical music slightly because it's becoming it's maybe not as timeless as it was in so in this in that generation and because your 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 roots i guess will come from sort of very traditional like that blues um sort of it's got a it's got a story behind it hasn't it it's not just made to sell it's made to tell a story right yeah, I think the trad, the trad is definitely on. You know, it's definitely losing its foothold, but it's a different thing. It's you know, yeah. I don't, I don't feel like that. The trad music has to compete with, mm-hmm. you know, the pop, the pop culture covers in a bar. It's, it's in like the. I think the trad event is, is a session, and it's like it's like mass. It's a cult. You know, it's a thing. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be up for the same. Um, air spot as you know the kind of covers gig or whatever yeah but definitely you know the the, the generations change and maybe if parents don't pass down the, the love for trad to their kids there will be you know in a generation or two there will be no spot for the trad music unfortunately maybe but like in in the places like dublin and you know the the, the way more kind of desensitized you say that though, because because obviously even if it's not parents, like I I have a, you know we're all fortunate that our parents listen to varieties of music, but I got a lot of my sort of understanding of live music from going to these places like Hebe's and Hannah's Bar in Liverpool when we were in university and when I was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and if they if musicians and artists don't have the 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 platform to perform, then somebody like me who are walking off the street won't hear it, and then it's gone. From me, it might be alive for that, um, that niche, but it's gone from the surprise listener who loves it just as much as everybody else, but doesn't quite realise it yet. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, we need a shop window. We need a, yeah. you know, like a watch this space. 
um, currently, unfortunately, it's Spotify. But um, yeah, we need we need venues and places willing to like. That's what I'm loving about you know Connor and Trev who who run these three bars in Liverpool. They're just like, just don't do Matthew Street, just do cool stuff. And I was like, we don't care what you play, just don't play what everyone else is playing. I was like, that that we can do. <laughs> new avenues as well, and like to kind of bring it a little bit full circle. Like, can you sort of discuss sort of like what opportunities you had with Everton? Um, in relation to getting yourself out there in front of new fans and things like yeah, that? Yeah, well, um, so when Everton released the third kit, the Seafoam green kit, um, a couple of people started tweeting like, oh, you know, your band's called Seafoam Green, kit Seafoam Green, the fans who you played the fan park, you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that got enough traction that we ended up talking and uh, they sent me some links to... They do these music sessions. There's a couple of bands that have done them. Where they go out to the training park and um, they have a kickabout and they do a live session. They do a couple of songs and blah, 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 and meet some players. And, you know, it's, it's, it looks dead fun. They were like, do you want to do one of them? And we were like, absolutely. And uh, and I was like, can we have some of those Seafoam green jerseys? And they were like, absolutely. And I was like, nice. Did you get a game at the end as well? I'm, I'm hoping we do. Like, we, we were, they asked us to film something in isolation and i was like i i'd rather wait and do something cool with you you know what i mean and they respected that that we didn't want to just kind of throw something together and just put it out under their brand and our brand to use the you know i hate using that word but you know what i mean and so i was like just wait till you know this all blows over and we can do something cool together and you know it'd be great I thought Sarah meant actually on the team sheet looking at our bench. I weekend. did, to be honest, you know, yeah. In a way, in a way, I <laughs> number, did. <laughs> number, number, number 47, Dave. I could do a Brady. job, you know. I could do a job. Banging on about those knees before for Bohemians, mate. I think you've sold yourself down, to be honest. We can cut it out if game, you want, if you honest. still want to get it. 60 grand, though. What's the, um, what's the, where does the name come from, by the way? Have we discussed that yet? Where does where does that come from? The, the band name? Yeah. So um, there's a wonderful guitar player called Adrian Godfrey. He might have played with us when you when you played with us. He was there was kind of like a two year period where he was like kind of he was touring with us a lot and playing with us a lot and and that's when we were under still under my name. And when I made the Topanga Mansion record, which turned out to be the first Seafoam Green record, uh, me and the producer um, Rich Robinson, he was just like, maybe we should put this out under like a pseudonym, kind of you know just. There's a ton of Irish sounding acoustic singer songwriters, you know what I mean? Let's let's try and try and separate ourselves from the pack. And then I said to Adrian, I'm looking for a band name, and he suggested a couple and he said Seafoam Green. And then I just kind of started it was it wasn't a colour that I was overly aware of before he said it. And then suddenly I started seeing it everywhere. And then I thought oh, that's probably a sign. And and then I like saying it, I like the, the tactility of you know, saying the words. And I thought, yeah, cool. Yeah, great. Plus, like, band names are dumb, right? Oh, yeah. Band names, like, Led Zeppelin is a dumb band name, right? <laughs> well, Led Zeppelin are a dope band, so Led Zeppelin is a dope band name. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> it's like, if you're in a dope band, you've got a dope band name, and if you're in a shitty band, you've got a shitty band name. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> That's and, so true. What about ABBA? ABBA? ABBA are a dope band, so it's a dope band name. Forwards or backwards, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have a get pass. So we've got um, a new record out called Martin's Garden, and uh, we love it. It's ten songs, about an hour long. We made it in Atlanta, Georgia, last year, just before the pandemic started. 
we're going to be putting one song a month for 10 months up on Spotify. We don't want it because it's hard to get people to buy a record if they can just go to Spotify and just like have it on their phone straight away. So mm. um, we're going to try and make it available to the people who want to buy it. And for the people who don't want to buy it, they don't get it for free. You know what I mean? So. And where can they buy it from? Like if I wanted to have a physical copy of the record? Through any of our social media, we um, there will be a pre-order link. And yeah, listen, you're going you're gonna to know. We're going to be canvassing <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> and some of the record shops in town, they're going to be stocking it as well in Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we have a new distribution deal. I might be wrong. I think, I think it's going to be in a lot of shops across Europe, I think. That's great news. That's, that's at Seafoam Green HQ, mate. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, across oh, all the socials and the seafoamgreenband.com. Good stuff. So, really appreciate you coming on, Dave. And before we, before we finish, mate, we're just going to jump over to some quick fire questions for you. Okay. Uh, so, best music venue you've ever played? Uh, Royal Albert Hall. Best pint of Guinness in Liverpool? Um, at the moment, the dispensary or Dockleaf? One book we should all read. Um, the Third Policeman by Flann O'Brien. Your most memorable or iconic kit growing up? Uh, probably my first St. Patrick's Athletic kit. The first, my first home kit. What year would that be, Dave? Uh, 1994. Someone checked that out on classic footy shirts or something like that. So be like 900 quid now that one day if you just mentioned it. <laughs> uh, jam session, Jefferson Airplane or The Doors? Uh, probably Jefferson Airplane. Oh, same. That was mine. The man of many hats. You've got one hat for the road. Which one is it? One hat for the road. Probably this one. Nice uh, visual for all of our listeners. I'll take a picture. <laughs> <laughs> Explain money and football in one word. Terrible. You get to listen to music with one Everton player, past or present. Uh, Eto. Oh, okay. that's a choice. That that so <laughs> left field. That's really. <laughs> He'll probably turn up for the first forty minutes, have an absolute blinder, <laughs> and just get and, and leave to leave to a larger production company of some sort. <laughs> so. Yeah, oh, uh, Ireland's most influential footballer. Probably just it's got to be Roy Keane, doesn't it? Got to be. Yeah. And finally, uh, Thin Lizzy or Boomtown Rats. Oh, Thin Lizzy, that's a dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, ple- pleasure, mate. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. This was cool. Can you lead us out, please, of the pod? Yeah, up the toffees. <laughs> All right, friends, you have seen the heavy groups. Now you will see morning maniac music. Believe me, yeah. It's the new dawn. And the regular guys.